Hello, freaks, and welcome to Radical Research. It wasn't uh, more than a few days ago, Hunter, that I was down there in Savannah with you celebrating your 40th birthday. Your incredible wife, Janie, threw an amazing party, one of the best I've ever been to. And I, th I think a lot of that had to do with the pizza place. What are they called? Um, Big Bond. Big Bond. Big B-O-N. They had their, their pizza truck in your driveway. So yes. I'm sorry that you Not didn't- Not every day that I have a wood-fired oven in my driveway. <laughs> I wish I did. If it was every day, I'd be moving to Savannah. <laughs> yeah, that was is amazing. Is that what it's going to take? I think that is what it's going to take, yeah. Okay, well. uh, no, that was amazing, and uh, happy birthday to you. I'm, I'm glad to be sharing uh, our 40s together for at least a little while. Yeah, but uh, it, was, it was a great time. Good to see uh, Nathan from Canvas, uh, some of the Savannah boys, um, made some new friends. It was, it was wonderful. Anyway, we have a new sponsor for Radical Research. That's really cool news. It's uh, Lamentations of the Flame Princess, Weird Fantasy Role-Playing. Yes. So that name might be familiar to some of you if you uh, were in the zine scene uh, back in the late 90s and the early aughts. Uh, Jim Raggi, the creator of Lamentations, put out a zine with the same name. And in fact, oddly enough, that's the first magazine that interviewed Canvas Hilaris. Indeed. Yeah, I, I remember that. Jim's yes. a fantastic guy, too. Uh, we um, are really pleased to be sponsored by him for 2019. I'll never forget kind of how I first kind of came across his name and uh, his attitude. And, and I say that with great love because he, he's always been a defender. Uh, he's always been um, not afraid to kind of speak his mind. Uh, and as I remember it, shortly before I got to Metal Maniacs in 97, uh, in late 96, Machine Head was the cover feature of a Metal Maniacs issue. Or maybe it was one of the ones I was on. I don't remember because Mike G would sometimes make those decisions. Love Mike G. I owe a lot to that guy. But we would sometimes butt heads on how things should be done. But Jim wrote a pretty angry post on the Metal Maniacs board at the time because he was angry that Rob Flynn of Machine Head said that they just didn't want to be known as a metal band anymore. And about how it's counterproductive to make that the cover feature of a metal magazine. And Chris Maycock had told him that nobody at the magazine read the board and to mail it in as a letter. So he did that. I contacted him when I got the letter and I let him know that in the interim, like Mike G and I had discussed this, if we were going to print it and Mike G wanted to print it, but Mike G also wanted to trash talk it. And I was fighting Mike G on that because I felt that Jim had a pretty legitimate gripe uh, and to fight back against him was maybe kind of dissing our readers. But Mm. You know, Mike G and I had these discussions all the time and we have still have a great love for each other. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't personal, but I, I, we just had a disagreement about how things should have run there. I don't even remember how it worked out if, if Mike G slagged him or not, but yeah, that was, <laughs> there was a big disagreement in the office on how to handle this. And yeah, and the, I think that was the year that Lamentations of the Flame Princess zine uh, was mentioned in Metal Maniacs. And then like we mentioned it a lot throughout the years. Yeah, Jim and I go back a long way and he's a, he's a really great guy. And so after the zine, for roughly the last 10 years, um, Lamentations has been a tabletop role-playing game like Dungeons & Dragons in the 80s or Vampire in the 90s, kind of a strange mix of uh, role-playing and horror metal attitude. And Jim uh, mailed both Hunter and I about six or seven modules of some of his different games, and they're, they're really incredible RPG experiences. And I haven't played all of them, but they're incredibly fun to look at. And like, he does an amazing job. And I'm really proud of Jim and what he's done with this. I remember playing RPGs way back in the day when Dungeons and Dragons was a thing in the 80s. Uh, and I loved it. But I think I had other things on my plate as a kid at the time. And I just didn't spend the amount of time you need to on, on stuff like that. But yeah, Lamentations of the Flame Prince has, has won a ton of awards over the years. They've also had titles banned because of the over-the-top themes and artwork in some of the books. Uh, so Jim's being as disruptive as ever. Yes. So go to LOTFP.com. That is LOTFP.com. And check out their free downloads, including a text-only version of the rulebook, a massive better-than-any-man campaign, and even more bizarre things. Lamentations of the Flame Princess. Weird fantasy for weird people.
So for our 23rd episode, Hunter and I are dipping toes in the waters of what we're going to call, for lack of a better term, art rock. I've always thought of art rock not as a synonym for prog rock, which I think a lot of people kind of tend to think of it as, but as a distinctly different strain. It's related to prog, but it's music that also embraces pop sensibilities and has a quirk and a sense of humor that also sets it apart, along with a, a, quite a number of other sort of demarcations that make it what I consider art rock. To make this a little clearer and kind of get a sense of what we're aiming for, and kind of what my fascination with this little thing is. Think about the most adventurous aspects of the Beatles' great evolution. Think about all that David Bowie did and what he meant in the 70s. Think of the wide stylistic swath of Queen and also the 70s output of Roxy Music and 10CC. That's kind of where our heads are at here. We're not going to cover those bands. They're almost too big to cover, and I'm sure a lot of podcasts have covered those bands already. There are a lot of other bands who fit into this realm, all with origins in the 70s, uh, some with origins in Prague and some not. We won't even be exploring all of them on this episode. Uh, this is rather just a taste. Yeah, so this is, I suppose, kind of the radical research take on art rock. Like Jeff said, if you're familiar with, you know, the Beatles' most adventurous music or Queen, you kind of have a, 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 a context for what we're going to discuss tonight. We're going to look at bands that are sort of vectored toward our taste. And I will agree with Jeff in the sense that, like, I started getting into some of this stuff at the same time that I started getting into Prague. And you and I kind of got into Prague, like, heavily into Prague around the same time, right? Well, yeah, because like, this we was... were both, we, yeah, we both liked, you know, we were both into, you know, Rush, Genesis, Vandergraaf, Gentle Giant, other little things, but like, when, and, and you were really kind of the impetus for it for me. Like when you started to dive deep, so did I. Yeah. And, and that led to, you know, bands from countries outside of the UK, obscurities within the UK, like Nidralog and, and uh, the band called England, so many others, bands from Argentina. I mean, just all over the place. And then as you delve with this stuff, you find these things that are kind of outliers or maybe just sort of on the periphery. The five bands we're going to cover tonight I think I'm, I'm looking at all five and I'm thinking, I, I think I sort of just happened upon all five of these while I was just going wild, trying to find anything that was different and weird and left field yeah. in the prog rock world. And these all just really kind of took root with both of us and hence this show tonight. But um, it's Crack the Sky from West Virginia. And in a lot of ways, people think of them as a Baltimore band. Bebop Deluxe from England, Godly and Cream from England, Split Ends from New Zealand, and Max Webster from Canada. So yeah, the first one, Crack the Sky. This is a band whose records are often seen in the used bins, right? <laughs> yeah. I, in fact, I got mine used. Yeah. Unfortunately. Uh, they, they shouldn't be overlooked. In fact, I, I like them so much, I reserved the one and only music-related sticker on my car for Crack the Sky. <laughs> um, yeah, they came together in West Virginia in the mid-70s under the leadership of a songwriter named John Palumbo. The city of Baltimore really took to them, and... In a way, that's sort of their second home. Uh, their first three albums and the Live Sky album, so essential. The two after their early peak period uh, are called White Music and Photo Flamingo. Those are really good and underrated. And after that, buyer beware, it gets seriously dicey. We're going to listen to a song from their first album, the self-titled Crack the Sky album from 1975. It's a tune called Ice.
Yeah, that one's kind of obvious as like a highlight of their career because I think most Crack the Sky fans put that in the top five. But um, there's a reason for that. Like one of the things like you get a little taste of, you'll hear more of later, are all the little interesting detours and, and grottos in this music. And like obviously you get that in Prague where like the arrangements are a little bit wilder, a little more you know, unwieldy. I think one of the things that like sort of foregrounds that is that in, in art rock, like the, the arrangements themselves are more tethered to, you know, traditional pop or rock music kind of arrangements, but you have all these like interesting little details and these, these little asides. That's one of the things that characterizes art rock for me. I mean, because I think all these bands may, well, not godly cream accepted i was going to say but i i still think they had enough quirk but you know if you strip away some of the details and some of the like just brief side detours and stuff they really could have been pop bands they could have been more of like a power pop cheap trick thing maybe if they were more heavy-handed or but no they each um kind of toss in these little bits of 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 spiciness actually you know just or just creativity I i think to to kind of color things and give more depth to the song Ice is one of their longer songs and it is one of their progier songs and they have stuff that's a little more straightforward as well. But this just kind of eclecticism throughout the album and the kind of ethereal quality actually is, is sort of what drew me to them. They also kind of tend to put me in the mind or in this kind of same headspace as Blue Oyster Cult who are just such a favorite band and such a creative and interesting band. Right. And I think Crack the Sky kind of get there. And I also think Blue Oyster Cult are sort of an honorary art rock band in a lot of ways in a lot of I ways. think so they're not often thought of that way yeah they tend to make it onto various prog sites in in terms of like you know being listed as as a prog related sort of band or or whatever obviously they're kind of proto metal well there are a lot of things there are a lot of things they're certainly not your generic hard rock yeah uh, and that uh, that kind of typifies all this sort of stuff Crack the Sky's second album is called Animal Notes. I think that's the first one I discovered and and one I just 100% recommend. Um, But we're going to skip to their third album, Safety in Numbers. This is an interesting album because it's very, very strong. This is an Uh, amazing album. It is. And and this is, I think this is the one you see the most in the, in the used bins. I, this, I picked this one up in a used bin. Yeah. And it's, a, it's, it's such a shame because it like, I think people gloss over it cause they see it so often. Like it's like a best of bread or something. <laughs> <laughs> Pablo Cruz, man. Pablo Cruz. It ain't that. Uh, but yeah, safety in numbers was cool. Be, well, kind of weird because John Palumbo wrote, I think about everything or co-wrote everything, but he wasn't actually singing or playing on the album which is, I think it's the only Crack the Sky album that you can say that about. He left the band briefly, and they went on with a different singer. They had just sort of a session guy in. Uh, the core band just sort of made an album without John, uh, which is sort of like making a Megadeth album without Dave Mustaine or something. It's just a strange arrangement, but it worked. Uh, and as you'll hear, um, the opening track, Nuclear Apathy, is really one of the greatest Crack the Sky songs of all time. Yes.
Yeah, so don't let that sit in the used bin because, good Lord. Please. <laughs> I remember when I got this, I, I, I didn't think it was as strong in the, as the first two. Uh, I would skip over Flashlight and maybe Lighten Up McGraw, but, man, I can't get enough of Flashlight now. Like that, and it's, and I guess the, wor- the reason I'm saying that is because I think the worry is like when you see something like that in the used bin, it's like, you know, it's only five bucks or seven bucks or something. Right. You're like, well, is there only one good song on it? Like, is, is Nuclear Apathy the only good song? It's the best song. It's not the only great song. But no. And yeah, you have nothing to worry about. But like, yeah, I, I just can't get enough of like Flashlight where like the, the syncopation of the rhythm section is so dynamic and energetic and hungry. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, and I, like, I think that you get a taste from this track. Like one of the things that sort of differentiates art rock from Prague itself is sort of its willing to, willingness to um, interface with like hard rock in a more explicit way. Yeah. Um, you hear that same kind of groove in Gentle Giant too, though. You know, but but here, like, it's, you know, just like the beginning of what we played was like just straight up hard rock. Then that guitar break, that dual guitar break. I know. Much, I like, know you want to talk about that. Of that course part. I want to talk about that. And like, it pretty <laughs> much like traces, you know, like the evolution of, ex, you know, experimental rock guitar playing from like Crimson to Voivod. But dude, and I like I've got to go back and maybe we'll revisit this in the next episode. Um, because I've got to find the the exact moment, but that track that that one little moment reminds me so much of an a uh, passage from an Opeth song. Yeah, and I okay. can't identify which Opeth song, but between now and then, I will, and we'll come back to that. Please and, do and it. Any, any listeners that know what I'm talking about, reach out. It it, it sort of has that backwards quality. Um, it does. And, and, you know, I, I guess we can spoil this too. You know, next episode, we're going to talk about nothing but Nasty Savage in, in their weirdest period. We're pretty much going to be talking about the guitar works of Nasty Savage. Yeah, indulgence yeah. and abstract reality. There's a lot more to them, but no, it, come on. I guess, who am I fooling? It, it's really about the guitar work on, on those two albums. And, and, and it, that reminds me of that stuff too that this crack the sky part we're talking about it it also reminds me that i I think you're spot on with the opeth i'm curious what people might come up with i'll try to figure that out too yeah let's Um, all work together but (laughs) that's so beautiful i uh (laughs) but you know this that was that part that made me just like oh my god this is one of my favorite bands of all time because now yeah totally now they have three albums that are just so great yeah so uh have fun delving if you don't know crack the sky already that's just great stuff First three, I, I we, we can't say enough about them. The Live Sky album is actually one of the one of the great live albums too. Um, do check that out. Has a version of Beatles uh, "I Am the Walrus" on it, which is pretty fantastic. We jump to England as we often do. I think that's our second favorite overseas destination, Norway being the first. And we get into Bebop Deluxe. This is a band whose name I'd always heard but always dismissed because you know Bebop. Right. It kind of scared me and made me think that they were. Not even Bebop. I kind of knew that they weren't sort of there and nothing to, I'm not trying to disparage Bebop or or any of that sort of thing, but it made me think they were maybe something like Manhattan Transfer or Dire Straits or something. I don't know. I just had this weird, (laughs) like what, you know, I just didn't care. And, and, um, but. And they wear suits. And they wear suits. But you know what? You and I went to Nearfest one year together and I went to Nearfest several times prior to that and then after that. And at one of those, I don't remember which one it was, but there was some guy coming up to the table like, do you have those Bebop Deluxe reissues? And I was like, what? You know, like, why is that name coming up at Ken Golden's table here when everybody in this, in this building is into prog rock? And Ken Golden's the reason that I got into Bebop Deluxe. Ah, yeah, he's a big fan. And well, you know, I, that, that curiosity was enough for me. Like, okay, I guess there's something to this band. And indeed there is. The main guy in the band is guitarist Bill Nelson. He has this really like airy, atmospheric, fluid, magical approach to guitar. I mean, you'll you'll hear it in these snippets, but no, he's an extraordinary guitarist, truly. Yeah, yeah. After five albums, they disbanded, and Bill Nelson went on to this incredibly prolific solo career too. I haven't, I had no idea uh, until I was checking it out actually a few weeks ago how prolific it is. I'm not sure how much of it is great, but. If you get into Bebop Deluxe, you're going you're gonna to be led to some of Bill Nelson's uh, solo stuff. But he's an interesting character. He was also involved in Flock of Seagulls for their Listen album of 1993 as a producer. Uh, so that's kind of interesting. 
And really, incidentally, and this is something that I think needs to be said now, uh, we, we mentioned Flock of Seagulls, and we mentioned kind of the time period all this stuff came out and kind of when it was happening. Uh, the final Bebop Deluxe album, Drastic Plastic, released in 1978, really kind of showed them veering into this sort of new wave synth pop direction, uh-huh. um, which that became popular at the dawn of the 80s. And, and I think a lot of these bands kind of have some kin with what they helped birth, I, I suppose. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it's just a symptom of, you know, the evolution of, from the 70s to the 80s. And you kind of had, a, you know, a few choices to make. And they made one, I mean, I, I think they were sort of keyed into pop music in a way that maybe some other bands weren't like just in terms of the zeitgeist and that's what directed their evolution. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all bebop albums are recommended by radical research and we're not going to play anything from drastic plastic just because I think like all these bands, there's just too much to choose from really. Um, but we're going to play something from the awesome Futurama album. Um, yeah, you love this one, right? Probably my favorite. This, Uh, this one, this one in modern music are my favorites. God damn it. Why do we always agree? (laughs) (laughs) Let's get an old old son. (laughs) Now this is a, and this is a highlight from a highlight album. This is from Futurama. This is sister seagull. You know that that's a really inspiring song. It's just that's just like classic seventies hard rock. Like I like I think about the melancholy and the elegance from like Rockarola and Entrance yeah. and that as well. Yeah, it, it also makes me think of like some of the heavier Bowie stuff. And I know people don't think of Bowie as heavy, but his uh, album "The Man Who Sold the World." I'd be surprised if Bill Nelson wasn't completely infatuated with that album because it's kind of the, you're getting sort of into the same world there with Futurama. Sure. Yeah. And there's no bender involved in Futurama people. This is not about the, uh, the, the awesome cartoon. But, um, <laughs> so they, uh, their third album was called Sunburst Finish. Let us not forget about their debut, Axe Victim. We're going to jump to their fourth album, Modern Music. This is kind of one of the more straightforward and made-for-radio songs, I suspect, on the album. Yet, it has some of the most amazing Bill Nelson guitar work. 
And uh, it's a pretty eclectic album as a, as a whole. So let's just give that a listen. Yeah, they operate at a pretty high level, and I think in all departments, don't they? Oh man, like, yeah. I mean, his guitar playing is almost spectral in that song, and it is straightforward. But I think it gives you a sense of the uh, the muscularity of that rhythm section too. Yeah, they they always had that, and I think that's something that that Nelson was was always looking for. You bring up a really good point about his guitar sound and his work. It's and I think the whole song, despite me saying, well, it sort of sounds, you know kind of radio made it's just got this kind of gauzy sort of hazy dreamlike quality that uh, dreamlike's perfect word for it well so is spectral and and bebop was sort of about that where they were a little bit deceptive you know they 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 seem to be rather um straightforward on the surface but you just start listening to all the components and um yeah they're they're pretty special there's there's a lot of detail a lot of wonder there great band yes let's move on you know, I don't even know what to say about Godly Cream. My my introduction to Godly Cream was actually um, you had come to visit me in Columbia, and we had gone to uh, to Papa Jazz, and you had them put L on hold or something. No consequences. The box the set. consequences. Okay, it was consequences. Yeah, that three LP thing. Their very first sort of solo work. Yeah. Okay. And I remember like going and picking up uh, Steve Reich's drumming on cassette and, and getting your godly cream box. Yep. And they got the counters like far out, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's quite a day. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And consequences is sort of infamous. It's, so let's, let's, let's give, Godly and Cream a little context here. They came from 10CC. Right. And 10CC were an English band who were just these kind of masterful songwriters. All four of the guys, you know, were just great players, great, great creative minds. Um, they had some hits. We could maybe do a show on them someday, but they're a favorite band of mine for sure. I know you absolutely appreciate them. I'm not sure how much you know. Or uh, I actually kind of grew up with them because my dad was a huge 10CC fan. Oh, nice. Okay, cool. So I, yeah, I yeah. kind of grew up with their music. Yeah, I mean stuff like like sheet music and how dare you? Those are those are incredible. Um, but anyway, you know after after four albums, Kevin Godley and Lowell Cream split from Ten CC, and they did their own thing. And, and and their their partnership went into this more eclectic experimental side that you always heard in Ten CC, but it kind of took it to its more logical limit. And 
by limit, I mean, it took them a while to get to that limit. Like they were, they would, they would just go everywhere in their attempts to just kind of like transform pop music into this kind of really more adventurous, eclectic realm. In my humble opinion, also, as an aside, 10CC were never the same after Godly and Cream exited. I don't think they ever recovered artistically. So there's a lot to talk about here. And Consequences was a really, <laughs> um, it was three albums and there was a lot of dialogue on it and there was a lot of like theater to it and it was wonderful in spots, but it's, it's a long thing and it's something nobody yeah. listens to from front to back, but it did have this thing on it, this instrument called the Gizmotron. It was this kind of electric guitar version of the Mellotron and that it was a guitar that had like an electro mechanical device clamped over the bridge and the device's motor driven plastic gears came into contact with guitar strings and created an effect of like boat instruments, like cellos and violins, endless sustain as well. That was a feature of the Gizmotron, which reminds you of what? The Ebo, right? And Robert Fripp. And, well, and Robert Fripp, exactly. So this was in the heady, you know, late 70s period where kind of anything was really going at this point in rock. I guess that includes punk, but, you know, I, I usually like to keep that out of well, our conversations. Well, I mean, you, you think how quickly punk as kind of a 1977 phenomenon fizzled and like almost immediately those bands kind of mobilized the energy that was around punk and started feeding off other sources and you know you you get stuff like you know slits and this heat pop group Susie and the Banshees, Public Image Limited, uh, Wire, Birthday Party, so on and so forth so punk rock basically just um, created an, an apparatus for musicians who um, felt maybe a little disenfranchised by the technicality and the financial privileges of, of you know, bands subsidized by major labels. Right, right. And you're bringing up a great point in, in context of Godly and Cream, simply because this isn't, we're talking about 78, 79, I guess in consequences case, 77. But you know, a lot of people, when they cast back and look at rock in the 70s, in the mid to late 70s, punk always comes up. And I have no problem with that. I mean, history shows me that I'm wrong, that it did something. Like, I'm not a big fan of the stuff. I think it, I think it musically is rather inept. I think it's, it certainly has its place in history, though. And it spawned this amazing post-punk thing, which was kind of incredible. But my point is, there was a lot more going on in rock than just punk. There was, sure, post, there sure. was the post-punk that's, that kick-started almost as soon as punk fizzled, which was almost like a year after it started. Exactly, you know I mean? like, yeah. It was a quick life. And the way Prague was evolving, I think, is considerable. I think people don't give enough credit to that. I also don't think people give enough credit to something like Godly and Cream, where, like I said, with the Gizmotron and the instrumentation and, and some, you know, some of the things that Robert Fripp was doing in the, in the late 70s, some of the things David Bowie was doing, you know, people need to remember that that was, stuff was happening too. It's not like Bowie and Fripp don't get the credit. I have always thought that Godly and Cream didn't get enough credit. And I think that kind of brings us back around to at least our original point. So without further ado, uh, you know, and here's the thing with Godly and Cream, there's a lot more straightforward stuff on some of their albums that came out in the late 70s, early 80s. It's all really good to some degree. We're huge fans, but we did pick out some of the kind of stranger <laughs> moments from the, some of their albums because it's just, it's just worth listening to. And, it's, and it's, I think it's a really good hook for people who may not be into it that might <clears throat> actually go out and, and check out some of this stuff as a result of hearing this stuff. So uh, we're going to play two snippets in a row. We're going to play the Sporting Life from the L album. The artwork is a dead giveaway as to why they called that L. I'll let you... Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, it is. Well, yeah, it's awesome. It's great artwork. I'll let you figure that out for yourself. Uh, and then uh, Freeze Frame from 1979, that's the album name. And that carries a song called I Pity Inanimate Objects. Again, you'll hear why we play this. Some of the weirdest stuff from Godly and Creep.
book. Give me the keys. The elevator opens its mouth like Jonah of the Whale. The elevator spits me out. To a great show, it's a great show. And into his warm-up I think here we hear some of the whimsy more than the first four songs that we played um, that help differentiate art rock, maybe from its more serious cousin, prog rock, where there's a certain expectation of gravitas. We tend to think of prog rock as a, um, you know, a theater of freedom, but in some ways I feel like um, these art rock bands are, um, less obligated than than prog bands and freer to do things freer to inject humor and absurdity into their music that's an incredible observation i have nothing to add that's that's an incredible cap on godly cream and kind of what we're trying to to say about them and and show about them so spot on brother and i think that's a really good segue to split ends because they were kind of from they were kind of cut from the same cloth right um Split End started in New Zealand as kind of a Led Zeppelin slash Jethro Tull influenced prog band. They didn't even have any percussion at the time. They added that. They became a little more akin to maybe some of the UK stuff, yet they always had their own quirk. But they were definitely prog at the beginning. And then they went on. But, you know, everything from their costuming to their lyrics to uh, their attitude to the live shows to the artwork, to the songs themselves, just the way the music moved and, you know, how they, the band transformed from like prog to art rock to pop because they really had kind of three distinct phases. Right. Yet they all bled into each other. You know, you, you could hear prog in the pop stuff and you could hear pop yep. in the prog stuff. But That's a really know, good point. But and the thing like, you're, that, like you really do hear the traces of all those things throughout their whole career. But the thing you said about Godly Cream in terms of like they sort of like, you know, unchained themselves from the gravitas that was expected of Prague. 
you know, I think split ends always had, I don't know if it was because they were just like so separated being in New Zealand or just what it was, right. uh, but they were, you know, they were also big Roxy music fans. They took stuff seriously, but they were also really untethered by the prog stuff. Uh, the prog chains, if you will. And there's nothing wrong with that because we love a lot of that stuff that is completely in prog chains. We're happy with that, you know. <laughs> Split ends really were just all about the, the more fun and just untethered aspect of musical experimentation within everything they were doing in every phase. I love this band. Most people know them from great, great, great pop songs like History Never Repeats or One Step Ahead or I Got You. We're going to get into stuff they did a little bit earlier than that, uh, at least for this first song. This one's called Crosswords. This is from their third album called Dysrhythmia. And this band featured Tim Finn and his brother, Neil Finn. Neil Finn is now in Fleetwood Mac. Uh, he was, of course, the guy behind Crowded House as well. Uh, but at this time, he was kind of like a young kid coming into his brother's band. And the Dysrhythmia album is kind of where they really found their foothold post-prog. I can't recommend Mental Notes highly enough, their very first album. But here we go. Let's, let's check out Crosswords and see where they're at. that I'm not sure I would have even discovered had it not been for you. I somehow missed all their hits. Um, and I remember in 2010, you and I sending um, CDs back and forth to each other. I made you a couple of fancy rock CDs, and then you made you reciprocated with some other stuff, including split ends. Yeah. And it, like, it was mostly – I remember you, like, there was some stuff from Corroboree on it, and you put some later stuff, too. But, yeah, I mean, I was always, like, struck by this because it seemed like the kind of thing that was right up my alley that I just, it was under my nose the entire time, and I never knew about it. But I love, I, you know, I, I love every era of this band, but I find that middle period maybe the most interesting because it's like you hear the tensions between, like, the prog and the art rock and the really experimental zaniness and their obvious pop tendencies, you yeah. Know, like they're they're sort of inborn. Like they're they're great pop songwriters. You know, it's yeah. like they have yeah. these other interests that maybe divert them away from that. But like at the root of it, like they're just great songwriters. Yeah, and they're just there's so much character in this band. And I think that's one of the things I love about one of the many things. And you know, I was aware of their pop stuff uh, all along, but just didn't realize what you know, their history involved in terms of like the depth of it. I, you know, my personal story with them is, is maybe interesting and, and worth just telling real quick. I was addicted to MTV when it came out. Like I was a kid who 
I knew I liked heavy stuff, but I was not, the metal obsession hadn't quite hit yet. That was like 1982. So like in 80, 81, MTV was brand new and I was addicted. In fact, my, my parents, when I would do something wrong or, you know, go out and cause trouble with friends as, as, as a 10 year old or 11 year old, they would, um, they would ground me by saying that, you know, I, I pretty much had all privileges except I couldn't watch MTV, which huh. was like just fucking emasculating to me. I, I couldn't believe that <laughs> I couldn't do that for like a week. So in that obsession of MTV and just kind of figuring out what was going on with, with music at the time, I got you from the band's True Colors albums came out. So I was seeing Split Ends for the first time. And I remember really liking that song a lot. Like I didn't even like everything I saw on MTV. I was just interested in it all, I guess. And then a metal obsession hit and that went away. But that song always kind of had this special resonance for me. And then like much, much later, you know, what, 20 years later, 30 yeah. years later? Well, I guess it was about 20, 25 years later. Getting into Prague, I found out that they were a straight up prog band at first. And I was like so intrigued with that idea. It blew me away. And I bought Mental Notes, uh, the one with the blue cover, because there's a very confusing history with that one. There's a second version called Mental Notes also the Second Thoughts album that's not near as good. Um, anyway, I got the original one. I got the right one. And, and that, I just went completely bonkers for that. Then I found out their pop stuff was as good as the prog stuff. And that pretty much their entire evolution was well worth investigating. I'm a bona fide ENDS fanatic now. One of my top favorite bands in any genre. And I think we can both recommend Time and Tide without any equivocation, right? Yeah, we, we got to mention that. That's kind of, you know, the way that Mental Notes is their prog masterpiece. Time and Time is their sort of pop masterpiece because it kind of really does, you can hear the prog past, you can hear the art rock past, but it's, it, it is a pop album, but it's one of the smartest, most sophisticated ones ever. I mean, yes, it's incredible. And that was their, what was that, their third to last i guess you know 1982 or something yeah right but they're also one of these art rock bands who and probably the best example of one who intersected with the new wave movement of the early 80s and we're going to hear this on this next track this next track is a bonus track this was criminally left off of the corroboree aka wyata album um i can't believe this didn't make that album there are songs i would definitely take off that album and put in the wars in, in their place and we're going to hear kind of how they sort of did delve a little bit into that sort of new wave era for a while too. What can we say about this song? This is, this is pretty amazing. This is called In the Wars. Let's go. That's amazing stuff. And uh, you probably have to hold me back from doing a whole show about split ends. 
I'd be fine with that. Well, I, I would be too, but we'll, we'll maybe save that for another time. There, there's split ends could be episode like 107. Okay. We'll move on to the, the, the final uh, band we've got here tonight. Max Webster. <laughs> Quite um, a band. Man, I tell you what, this was a band's name. This is another one where I was just like, I'd heard it forever. And it was always in context of Rush. They were close friends with Rush. They were on the Anthem label, which was kind of Rush's thing, but mostly their manager, Ray Daniels, who formed and ran that label. Once I actually finally heard them uh, again, you know, in the early 2000s, prog delving, it was through their first two albums, both of which are brilliant and, and really still the best, uh, the self-titled and then High Class and Borrowed Shoes. It was really hard to pick two songs to play. <laughs> well, like, obviously, we had to pick one song. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe let's get into that, and we'll talk about Max Webster a little more as we get back. Yeah, we had to play Toronto Tontos. I remember first discussing this episode, and that came up for both of us. And, uh, and why is that? Um, to me, it's almost like a tie-in to Mr. Bungle level lunacy. Yeah. Like I, I actually did not know anything about this band until I bought, uh, Martin Popoff's, uh, encyclopedia. Oh, okay. The, uh, the collector's guide. Yeah. The collector's guide to heavy metal. Yeah. Um, I'd never heard of Kim Mitchell or Max Webster. Um, and I was immediately intrigued, you know, I mean, you know, pop off rights with such enthusiasm, he's able to seduce you into making bad decisions like buying status quo records, (laughs) but I think he'd take that as a compliment, but yeah, go ahead. It's fine, Martin. (laughs) But like, nonetheless, I was like really sold on this. And then when I got it actually lived up to it. Yeah, no, they're, they're, they're kind of amazing. I, I think I always had this sense of like, wow, maybe they sound like Rush. Of course, you know, they don't. <laughs> they don't. No, and that would be a, a ridiculous ex- expectation. But uh, nonetheless, I had that expectation. Anyway, let, let's listen to what they do sound like. Although, we have to say, this is from their debut. And, you know, I, I, I hate that we can't play in context of the moon and some of their other great songs. But like, you know, the first two albums are so great. But this is maybe not representative of their actual sound. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Okay, but we're going to play it anyway. This is Toronto Tontos from their uh, self-titled debut. Do you think it's weird that Martin Popoff included them in his collector's guide to heavy metal? Yes. They're not heavy but, metal. But I, I think that there's a lot of things in that book that I don't think are appropriate. I mean, do you really think like the entire Masters of Reality 
discography is apropos of a heavy metal encyclopedia? No, no. Uh, you know, you know, uh, there's a lot of stuff in there. The, the reason I bring that up is not to knock on Martin, but more to illustrate that they're Canadian. And I think yeah. he, I think a lot of Canadians have sort of a, a loyalty to their Canadian bands, as they well, should. That's fine. That, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of amazing Canadian music. You and I could do a side podcast oh, on uh, Canadian. Yeah, we could. Yeah. We, <laughs> so, that, just for the record, everyone, Jeff and I worship Canada. Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, Norway, England, Canada. I mean, Fuck, fuck the United States. Well, holy I terrorists from the United I'm kidding, States. I so. kid. I kid. No, holy terrorists from the United States. I couldn't say that. Other than that, <laughs> we, ain't, we ain't got shit, you know. <laughs> we got nothing but holy terror. Anyway, um, yeah, so kind of an amazing band. And it, it's the two songs we're playing are so not representative of what Max Webster's about. But I think we want to leave it up to you to kind of find that out for yourself. Uh, they're definitely an amazing band to delve into. And this is a song from their final album from 1980. This features guest vocals from what? We're not going to give it away. Uh, we think you'll know. Away. We think you'll know, but I remember playing this for you for the first time and how big your eyes got when it happened. <laughs> when it happened. Because these are some of the best vocals by this guest vocalist ever. And, and somehow they've been relegated to this weird song that not that many people know about. This is Battle Scar by Max Webster. Yeah, you know, the other guys from Russia are on that song too. It was basically just both bands getting together and playing the song on the um, Universal Juveniles album. And uh, Getty just takes it there. He, he doesn't, there's, there's nobody else that can touch that. It's like, you know, inviting Ryan Gosling on a, like, a, you know, to a dinner party with your girlfriend. <laughs> you, <know>? like, <laughs> you don't do that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it became like my favorite Max Webster moment because, you know, the song actually kind of drags a little bit near the end, but that initial moment, and you, I think you get another verse from Getty. I have yeah. to check that. Yeah, and, and uh, you can hear some Lifes and you can hear some Neil, but uh, man, Getty's voice, and this is in 1980, so this is like around the Permanent Waves era, and that's kind of one of his final shrieking moments, and he right. just sounds like such the sort of early metal god just killing it. Yeah. Um, amazing stuff. So this is a taste of art rock and this is a taste of why for me, and I, I think to, to, it's not fair to say a lesser degree, but certainly 
I, I think I've delved harder and kind of been the one to bring some of these bands to your attention the way you have maybe oh, yeah, for sure. in core for me, right? Yeah. Yeah. And these are five. And besides the foundational art rock gods we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, there's a lot of other bands we recommend in this era and this sort of, you know, area that we didn't feature. I want to mention a few of them. Um, City Boy is one of them. Brian Eno in his sort of 73 to 77 period before he got ambient. Uh, he did some great stuff that like, I think it's on par with like some Bowie albums. I mean, Oh, for certain. Yeah. Also another Roxy music alum, Phil Manzanera, his solo stuff from the seventies is amazing. Citizen band, part of the split ends family tree, uh, released a couple albums in the late seventies. The latter song is a song that I wanted to play in full. When we were kind of designing this episode, I, I thought of it, but then I thought better of it. I want people to go out and find a citizen band's latter song. One of the best songs ever. The band Angel from the U.S. Right around the 1975-1976 period. Would you agree that they were art rock? Yeah, especially the first album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. agreed. Manfred Mann's Earth Band, who we mentioned on the Synth Horrors episode, in 77 to 80, they kind of became what I can kind of consider art rock. The band Japan. Oh, God. Yes, please. David Sylvian. And, and, and also... I would highly recommend that you go out and um, and seek out David Sylvian's solo works. Yeah, that's stuff that not just the '80s stuff. Yeah, that's stuff that you've brought to my attention. I knew him first through the collaboration he did with Robert Fripp, and then I when I got into into Duran Duran, you know, you'd read old interviews with them and find out that they were big Japan fans, and then you go and listen to especially Japan's Quiet Life, and you're like, oh. Yeah, obviously. That's where the first Duran Duran album kind of came from in a way. Sure. A band called The Sparks, who when, when they first started out, they were called Half Nelson. Um, that first album is amazing. Their second album is amazing. I've had trouble with some of his vocals after that, but they qualify, right? Oh, for certain, man. Yeah. yeah. Or, or at least art pop. For sure. And I like, uh, I get maybe XTC. Oh uh, yeah. Wow. And I know I, yes, XTC for sure. Yeah. I, I love XTC. Thanks for reminding me of that one. There's, there's a lot more that I'm sure we're probably forgetting, but uh, those are a few, I would even say some select cheap trick tunes, something like high priest of rhythmic noise from their fifth album. I mean, that, that's kind of an art rock classic. There's other stuff throughout their career, violins a non LP track also art rock awesomeness. Uh, and as we said, we consider Blue Easter Cult kind of part of this family of bands. So thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks also to Jim and Lamentations of the Flame Princess. Please know we'll soon have shirts available. We'll let everyone know the particulars of that when they're ready. They're really, really cool. If you want to write us, please do so at radicalresearchpodcast at gmail.com. Please like us on Facebook. Please review us on iTunes. If you want to send a PayPal donation, you can send it to radicalresearchpodcast at gmail.com. Our email address is also our PayPal ID. We appreciate it. So join us next time for episode number 24, where we survey a very particular era of a very peculiar metal band, Nasty Savage. Their output in 1987 and 1988 is stuff that Hunter and I both consider some of the greatest metal ever released. And it's all about the guitarists, right? It essentially defies every categorization. (laughs) Um, It's not thrash. It's not power metal. It's not tag metal. It's all of them. But yes, it's like, no, the, the guitar work is what defines it. It'll be the David Austin, Ben Meyer show. <laughs> I mean, we got to yes. get props to those guys. I mean, the, I mean, really, truly, like, this is all about guitars. Yeah, the, the backward-sounding riffs, the just completely bonkers leads, 
the energy that they deliver, uh, how eccentric it all is. And then you add Nasty Ronnie onto the top and how weird he, he can be. The surrealistic artwork by Vanderkar. Yep, exactly. We're going to explore all of that in the next episode. One of the most imaginative thrash bands of the era. And like Hunter said, not even maybe that much thrash, but they kind of were, they kind of weren't. See you then. Until next time, stay nasty like Ronnie. <laughs> <laughs> That's the reality.